been blessed a number of times when I've been here to sit in front of him during breaking of bread. He's got a good voice too. Really enjoy enjoy that and uh, to see him playing the violin. There reminded me of days back in Sault Ste. Marie where we had two or three of the young people that could play uh, the violin and other instruments. And actually on Sunday nights, uh, May would uh, have the different young people to do all the special music on Sunday evenings uh, at the chapel up there. And it was uh, such a blessing. So thank you, Caleb, for that. I really, really did appreciate it. Well, I'm going to start with a, a story or two before we look into to God's Word together. You can be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I'm looking at Matthew's account of really uh, the first question that that uh, Steve asked uh, in the quiz today, and uh, uh, some of the other questions relate to that same account in Matthew. But but uh, it was great that you loaned to me and to me Nancy for two weeks back in February. We had just a wonderful trip in Israel. I think it's. Uh, if not the best, second best group that I've ever had over there in the years. The years I've been privileged to host a, a group going to Israel, and uh, we just had a, a great group and a good time together. And so the message this morning, Nancy's uh, heard part of it uh, because uh, there's two or three spots in Israel that that uh, I just have to have to teach a little bit. Uh, I did several uh, different spots devotions, but but there's two or three that I just feel that I have to, to say and speak at when I'm over there. But uh, on the way, uh, before we went to Israel, of course, I had to sort of, at the last uh, session with the oncologist, uh, clear things with him before we went. And uh, he knew that we were going to Israel without insurance, which is a, in some ways, uh, uh, people say a stupid thing to do. But if you can't get insurance and you feel God wants you to go, what do you do? My wife uh, had travel insurance, but uh, I can't get travel insurance now to go out of the country. Uh, and and uh, that's okay, because the insurance, I've, I've got a, uh, uh, an insurance plan that pays me dividends that are out of this world. And uh, you, you just can't beat uh, uh, the insurance that I have, because it's eternal insurance. But uh, he, he, he approved, uh, he, he's been, the oncologist has been great. And uh, the nurses have been great that, that uh, have worked with me through these, it's hard to believe, uh, uh, two and a half years uh, that we've been going through this uh, stage four inoperable cancer, uh, yet uh, his grace is sufficient every day. But as we, uh, we talk to the oncologist, and, and uh, he believes that uh, I need to enjoy life uh, uh, because of the treatments I'm going through, that's, uh, quality of life is very important, and he knows what I enjoy doing. And so he schedules things around my schedule, working at the camps and, and so on. Uh, the chemo always is scheduled around my schedule for those things. And even for this trip to Israel, when we talked to him, uh, uh, he said, you can go, but I'm telling you to do two things. Number one, when you're on the plane, because it's a long flight, it says you need to get up and move around the plane uh, at least every hour. And I said, no problem. I, we tell everybody that goes to Israel with us that you need to stretch. You need to, you know, uh, regularly because if you don't, it, it can be very dangerous with blood clots and so on. And I'm especially susceptible to that. And he said, secondly, I want you to wear a surgical mask all the way on the plane going and coming because remember, you're inside a metal tube and all your breathing is circulating air of everybody else's germs and you have no immunity so you need to wear a surgical mask i said good no problem so i go out and i get the surgical mask we head for israel i put it on when i get on the plane wear it faithfully for the entire time i don't get up and walk around on the plane because i find it's difficult to uh, with the crowded aisles and everything, but I do stretch and I always have stretched regularly on the plane. My uh, my legs and my feet and ankles and you know you can you can stretch even in a cramped place. So I did that faithfully and got to Israel and uh, we had a, just a fantastic trip. 
We uh, walked uh, most days about 12,000 steps. I don't know if Nancy knew that or not. It's a lot of walking because all the sites we go to are archaeological sites. They're historical sites where things that in the Bible happen. So we can see it and, and, and understand uh, the location. And, and it really opens the scriptures up to, to understand just little things that, that add to the, the understanding of, of the scripture and so on. So anyhow, things went well. What do we have? Seven nurses? Something like that. Six or seven nurses on the trip. And of course, every every time one of them said, you doing okay, Jack? Yeah, I'm doing fine. In fact, I think I did better than most people on the trip <laughs> as far as uh, uh, doing all the walking and stuff. And uh, couldn't keep up with Nancy, but other than that, uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't say I, I couldn't keep back with Nancy. Because <laughs> she... She was always ringing up the rear because she was so interested in everything and getting pictures and stuff, and it, it was great. Uh, we love love the time with her. But anyhow, we get ready to come home, all right? And uh, do do you know? I know my responsibility. I know what I'm supposed to do, and so uh, you know we pack and we we uh, go to the airport. We get on the plane, and uh, I go to the seat. I sit down, fasten my seatbelt. And then hit myself in the head. Why? Because the surgical mask are packed in my suitcase underneath the plane. So I say, Lord, you're going to have to be my surgical mask. <laughs> you're going to have to protect me because of my stupidity. I packed my surgical mask in my luggage instead of in my carry-on. Well, we get home. The next day, I start getting emails. The co-host, John Howard, Cole, from the trip. And then another one, then another one. By the end of the week, the one who never gets a cold had a cold. Mahima. Who's the one that came home with no cold? God's faithful. He answers our prayers. He takes care of us in spite of our stupidity. <laughs> so I just had to share that with you because the, the I... The germs were allergic to the chemo. That's, that could be what it was. <laughs> but it, it's it's amazing, really, when uh, through this chemo... I've, I've learned so many lessons. And as, as I said, it's been a difficult... Uh, especially the week of the chemo is getting more difficult every time. But uh, when we've gone to a three-week cycle... Uh, the second week, I'm getting my strength back every day stronger. The third week, uh, I, for the most part, really doing well. And I'm so grateful for that. But one of the things that I really, really uh, go to appreciate, God's concern not just about the big things, but the little things in our lives. You know, just little details. We forget something, God's there to you know, protect us in spite of ourselves. He's a faithful God, and I'm so grateful for that. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16, if you haven't turned there already. And I'm going to start reading with verse 13, although we're going to give a quick overview of the entire chapter. I'm going to start with verse 13 and read through verse 20 of this chapter. And it's a really, I've been preparing for, for camp this summer, and I'm going to do a series and I've told the people uh, uh, in, uh, uh, that basically uh, uh, this series that I'm putting together uh, has the potential of 6,094 messages. So I'm going to be around for a while, so don't put me in the grave yet. Uh, I'm going to be around. It's actually questions in the Bible. There are so many questions in the Bible and so many important, crucial questions in the Bible. Now, I can remember when uh, my children were young and at home. Uh, I can remember almost hating questions, especially for my daughter, because what was it? Why? Why? You, you ever get those questions? Yeah. yeah, why? It just seemed like she was always wanting to know the why of everything. And, you know, I found out she wasn't alone because almost everybody in the Bible that asked a question asked the question why somewhere along. 
That seems to be a very important question, but there are some questions. When you go through the scriptures, basically you will find that there are some questions that are absolutely essential. They're asked not because God's looking for answers. They're asked so that we will understand, basically, the circumstance, the situation, or what's important in life. And so when you look at the, at the, the, the question, I believe the most important question basically was the question that Steve was looking for, who answered the question this morning, and found it in, what was it, Mark chapter 9 or chapter 8, chapter eight uh, is where he was looking at for the answer. But basically in Luke chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 16, this question is asked. So listen for the question. Actually, he asked two very important questions. One is impersonal. He wants to know, what are people thinking? All right. What are people saying? And the other is very personal. So listen for these questions as I read through. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. All right, when you look at this, I want to, this morning, as we go through and, and, and look at especially the, the background and setting to this question that was asked by the Lord Jesus, and then the answer, why that answer, correct answer, is so important. So let's look together through this passage of Scripture. Let me ask you a question to start. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Does it matter what you believe? Or is it, eh, you know, it's really not so important. Many people tell us that if you believe a certain way, you're intolerant. I tell you, there are things that we need to be intolerant about. We need, because there's truth. Even though society today is saying there's no such thing as absolute truth, I can tell you, there is absolute truth. And we need to stand firm and strong on the truth. And we need to, in spite of what others feel about the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to boldly declare who Jesus Christ really is. In our society today, there are many beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you could go around and if you ask people what they think about Jesus Christ, depending on who they are, the answer is going to vary, vary tremendously. There was an individual uh, that years ago said this. He said, Jesus Christ was a deluded fanatic who, futility threw, uh, who through futility threw away his life in his blind devotion to a mad dream. There's nothing more negative than the critical study of the life of Christ. So what's he saying about Jesus? Basically, he was a fanatic. He was a person who had divine devotion to a, a mad dream. Someone else, a very, very well-known individual, said Jesus was a man who was sane until Peter hailed him as the Christ, and then he became a maniac. His delusion is a very common delusion among the insane. If you had asked some of the religions today, the religions of the world today, some would say that, that the man Jesus is dead, forever dead. 
He's one also that says that Jesus was an offspring of God, but not not the Son of God. Very God. Another group says this, Jesus was a polygamist. Mary, Martha, the sisters of Lazarus were his plural wives, along with Mary Magdalene. That's why they believe in polygamy. All right. Another said this. God's invisible portion of God could not enter man. Neither could God's fullness be reflected by a single man. Of course, that's contradicting the book of, of Colossians. For one thing, Colossians chapter 1. Where we read that in him all fullness was pleased to dwell. All right. Others say that Jesus was just a prophet. Most people today would say Jesus was a good man. Boy, what a warped view we have of goodness if he was a good man. You know, he was the biggest liar there was if he was not all that he claimed to be. That's not good. Lying's not good. So how can you be a good man? He was a great teacher. Well, he wasn't so great if he was teaching something that was not true. He was teaching that he was God. And yet, if he's not all that he claimed to be, you can't say he was a good man, though most people don't want to say he wasn't. Think of the contradiction of the statements that I just read of what groups or individuals believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? Well, again, there are so many things that we could learn this morning about the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want to learn basically the importance of the answer to the question that's given in this passage of Scripture. So a little bit of background and setting. If you go in this passage of Scripture, you'll find if you go back to chapter 1, and what we remember you always need to read Scripture in its context. What's it saying in the context that's bigger than just the, 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 the sentence or the paragraph itself? What's it saying? Well, the Pharisees, we read in verse 1, uh, along with the Sadducees, came, they were tempting Jesus. They ask him, show us a sign from heaven. Now, who were these scribes and Pharisees? They were the religious leaders. They were the people that had read and studied and, and thought they understood the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that, that were available in that day. And so they're asking Jesus for a sign. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he really, in a sense, ridicules them. He says, uh, in response to their demand for a sign, in verse 1, the response in verses 2 through 4, he said, well, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather if the sky's red. In the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky's, sky's red and, and lowering. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, I, I, I think, again, here, here's a, a great question. So many people think that they, they can uh, uh, tell you so much because of this they see and that they see, and yet they cannot understand the signs of the times. Right? So he asked them a question. They call him a hypocrite in doing it. He says, a, a wicked, adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But he says, no sign is going to be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now, think about it for a minute. In the day in which this was the event took place, the Lord Jesus Christ, right, he knows what those around him are thinking. He wasn't asking the question that he asked of what others were saying about him because he needed to know he was going to be on some kind of ego trip if they said, man, he's a great man or, or, or something. He, he knew what they were thinking. But he wanted the disciples to understand the difference between truth and falsehood. Between the truth and the lie. And these religious leaders, they were asking for a sign. Now think about it just for a minute. If you go through, they probably already had received more signs than they could imagine. There had been prophecies fulfilled. They knew that Jesus was from the line of David. They knew that he had been born in Bethlehem. They had heard that he was born of a virgin, although they probably did not believe that. 
They had heard that he would be rejected, and they were actually fulfilling a prophecy when it says he would be rejected by his own people, you see. And later on, they would realize that he was fulfilling prophecy of prophecy, basically a scripture that they won't even read today, Isaiah 53, because he was going to be despised, rejected, and he was going to be killed, crucified for them. There's going to be suffering and so on. But in Isaiah 35, there are some specific signs that the Jews understood would tell them when Messiah had come. There were some miracles that he was going to do that no one else could do. And he did them all before this time. The scribes and Pharisees had seen every sign and they would understand. And yet they're asking for a sign. What were the miracles that he definitely was prophesied Messiah would do when Messiah came? He would heal the blind. He would heal the deaf. He would heal the lame. And he would heal the mute. Four miracles. And Jesus had already done every one of these. And they said, show us a sign. No wonder Jesus called him a hypocrite. You've seen the signs. The signs are very clearly identified who I am. Why do you want a sign? You've got the signs. All the signs that are going to be given have been given to you. So Jesus' response to those religious leaders. And then the warning of Jesus to his disciples following this response. It says, then when his disciples were come to the other side, so so uh, we're, we're going here that they had been down in, uh, in, in Galilee and they're, they're going to the other side of the Lake of Galilee because of where they're going. If you follow the, the chronology here and the journey that they're taking, we find out that they, that they got the other side. They do what I did on the plane. They hit themselves in the head and said, stupid, you forgot to bring bread. It's meal time. We're starting to get hungry. You know, this is dumb. You know, and, and so they're talking back and forth. And, and when Jesus said to them, after, after they were talking about this, he said, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So here they are scratching their head. Okay, he knows we forgot the bread. He knows that, uh, that uh, we got nothing to eat. Jesus, what? Perceived. What they were discussing. So he said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why are you reasoning among yourselves because you brought no bread? So he says, Are you so quick to forget? I took how many loaves and big fishes? No, it wasn't that. It was A. How many loaves and how many fish? Come on, guys. What was it? Seven and two. Okay. Now, so. Five for the five thousand. Seven for the four thousand. Okay. Don't you remember? Where's your faith? Remember, we had that whole multitude defeated. And what'd you have? And we gave thanks and we broke it. And there was lots so that every one of you had a big lunch yourself after everybody was fed. See, that's a great miracle. And so, so after he said this, he said, don't you understand? Don't you remember the five loaves, 5,000, how many baskets? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000, how many baskets? Don't you remember? See, he'd already done these two miracles. Don't you remember that? And here you're worried about a lunch for the 12, 13 of us. What are you worried about? Where's your faith? And then they understood that he wasn't talking about you guys are bad because you didn't bring the lunch for us today. They understood he was talking about the leaven, the poison, the, the sin, basically, of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. The fact that they were demanding a sign. They were teaching untruth because they knew the truth but they didn't want to hold the truth. And so, 
he warns the disciples about this. And then we get down to verses 13 through 17. The Lord Jesus asks the questions that are answered and and uh, uh, response in verses 17 through 19. And then he commands the disciples. One of the we're, we're going to come back to the questions and answers, by the way. But one in, in verse 20, one of the most unusual commands. What did Jesus tell them after after they come up with the correct answer? He told them in verse 20, don't you tell anybody. Don't you tell anybody. You see, and this is something I'd like for you to think about. Why did he tell them not to tell anyone? Especially time you get to his death, burial, resurrection. And after his resurrection, what does he do? He says, go to all the world and preach the gospel. We're to go and tell everybody. Why did he tell them at that point in time not to tell anybody that who he was? You know the truth. Okay. But don't you tell anybody at this time. Right? You want the answer, you can talk to me next year. <laughs> but I'd like you to think about it because it's a question I get all the time. When, when I'm teaching in some of these passages like this, why did he tell them not to tell anybody? Because every place else we're told to go tell everybody. Well, think about it. So he gives that, and then when you get to the last part of the chapter, he begins to prepare his disciples. After they understand and are convinced of who he is, then he begins to prepare his disciples for his death. All right. And this is when a lot of division comes among not the, the immediate twelve, but among the multitudes that are following because of what he said here. So when you, you look at this, the background and the setting, I think it's really significant. But I want to go a little bit further in the setting. After Jesus told his disciples he had suffered and be killed and raised the dead, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, not so, in verses 22 and 23. And then uh, Jesus says, uh, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you. He gives a cost of discipleship. And then later on, there's the transfiguration. All right? These events are all tied very closely together. So the setting, let's go back now to verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, right? So when you look at the setting here, there's a place where these questions are asked. And this place is very significant based upon the answers that are given and his response to the answers, all right? So this is where one of the places, as I say in Israel, I always love to, to teach, is because Caesarea Philippi. Now there's two Caesareas uh, in, the, in the life of the Lord Jesus. There's Caesarea Maritima, which is one of Herod's uh, uh, palaces, and there is Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the very northern uh, uh, corner of Israel. All right? And so today it's bordered by the, uh, the Syrian uh, border and the Lebanon border, uh, it, where Caesarea Philippi is. Two of the hot spots, basically, in the uh, Middle East and in the wars that are going on over there. But when you come there, so I say, uh, it's one of the most beautiful spots in Israel when you go to Caesarea Philippi. And when you go to this spot, basically, even though it's one of the most beautiful spots when you look at it because of, uh, of a, a spring and stream coming out of the, the, the foot of the mountain, okay, it's also the ugliest spot. It is your, one of the ugliest spots. It's beautiful because of the, the nature, the natural surrounding that it's in, but it's ugly. Because when you're at Caesarea Philippi, the city of Caesarea Philippi was one of the most ungodly places on planet Earth. And why Jesus took the disciples there was because he was going to teach them some very great and wonderful truths that we love today. And so he, he goes there with all of its natural beauty. It was the most ungodly spot in Israel and really in the world in that day. It was so ugly because 
in Caesarea Philippi and in that location, 14 temples were there to worship Baal and others false gods. When people would travel into Israel, they would stop there to worship their gods and they would would uh, give their offerings and tributes to their God. There were uh, uh, niches in, in, in the, uh, the the rocks. There was a great temple there called the Temple of Pan. All right. And when you, you go to this temple to the God Pan, basically, uh, not only was uh, temples to the God Zeus, uh, uh, there was temples there to Baal, as I said, all these temples. But but this one, it is, it, we, we, can, we can see, in a sense, part of the structure of that temple. But when you look at that, basically, this was probably the most horrible, violent, immoral God of the day. You hear a lot about some of the other gods. You hear about Baal. You hear about Zeus. You hear about these other gods. You don't hear so much about the Pan God. But basically, he was a Greek God. And his worship to worship him, it involved sexual immorality, and it involved the sacrifice of children. And it's too horrible to describe, basically, what they would do to their children and in their immoral acts in that particular place. But it's that setting. That setting is called the Gates of of hell. That's a name that was called back in that day. And that's why when Jesus is responding, he says, the gates of hell, that's, right, that's where he was at. He was standing there at that horrible temple showing that who he was and what he was going to do, even that would never prevail against it. And it never has. Even in North America and other places around the world. Though we could look down on the on this temple and the and and the pan god, is North America any different? How many millions of children are people in North America sacrificing to their God? Whether it's a god of, of money or whatever, basically today, through abortion. The only difference is the pan god, the children were outside the womb. Today, the god of North America is inside the womb when it comes to sacrificing our children. They've changed it a couple places, but yeah, you're right. But it's, a, it's amazing how the scriptures still teach and speak to us what was going on then is going on today, and in many ways, even worse. So when you look at this place and what they were doing, Jesus now asked questions in verse 13 and verse 15, and he gets answers in verse 14 and 16. So let's look at the first question. This is the impersonal question, because when you look here, it says in verse 13, they came to Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man in. So he's saying, okay, this new person, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? It's an impersonal excuse me, an impersonal question. After they give the answer, which we're going to look at in just a second, he asks them the personal question. But, notice the contrast now. I don't want to know now what other people are thinking, but whom do you say He's making it personal now. He's pointing the finger at you. Okay, I understand what men are saying, but who do you say? I, you know, two questions. Impersonal. And it's, I tell you, in some ways, a whole lot easier to tell what other people are saying than it is to open up our heart and say, here's what I really believe. So he goes through. First question in personal, verse 13. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Second question, very personal. 
in verse 15, but whom say ye that I am? Now let's get to the heart of the matter with that. So the answer, the answer to the impersonal question found in verse 14, they said, now we don't know who was the spokesman. We assume it was Peter because Peter always is the one that spoke up first. Uh, we know the answer to the personal question. He's the one that be, becomes a spokesman because it tells us who did. But here it says, they said. Okay. So we don't know, maybe several of them. Maybe they sort of an open uh, uh, question here. And so uh, so Ali says one thing and, and Jacob says another thing and Caleb says another thing and Owen says another thing. And, you know, and uh, oh, it's good to know what you, you, you think about Jesus, you know. So they've asked the question of the kids. Of the disciples, you know, there. Who do men say that I am? Well, what was their answer? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah, Elias here, Elijah. Or uh, others are saying that you're Jeremiah, Jeremiah. And others are saying, well, you're maybe just one of the old prophets. Matthew's the only one that mentions Jeremiah. Uh, Mark and Luke uh, don't mention Jeremiah. They mention uh, uh, one of the older prophets or, or, or uh, uh, Elijah, but, but they don't uh, mention Jeremiah. But when you look at this, why, why do you think they came up with these three names in particular? John the Baptist. Why did they come up with that name? Well, maybe it's because of the message that John preached, that Jesus preaches, the message of repentance. you got to repent. Maybe it was, was basically because he was a, 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 a holy man, a, a, a man that seemed to follow God that was willing to give his life for, for uh, uh, his faith. See, we don't know exactly why they thought, well, people thought, well, Maybe he's John the Baptist resurrected. Okay. And then others would, would say, well, maybe he's Elijah. Why would they think Elijah? Well, again, there's several characteristics of Elijah that you, you would look at it and consider. Elijah was a man of prayer. Jesus would often go off to pray by himself. Even when he did various things, he would give thanks. He would pray. Maybe it was his prayer. Maybe it was a fact that basically of what he could do controlling nature. You know, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years, 42 months. You know, who was Jesus? He was a, a, a man that could say to the winds and the waves, peace be still. And there was instant calm. See? So maybe it's a they identify it that way. We don't know. And then when they say Jeremiah, or Matthew says Jeremiah, basically, we realize that, that uh, uh, once again, uh, there's some parallels. There's some things that maybe they think Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. They saw Jesus was a man of compassion. You know, later on, we find Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. We find him weeping at the death of, of, of Lazarus. Now, that's all after later on. But, but the point is, these things characterize the Lord Jesus. That he was a man of, of passion. He knew what it was like, as did Jeremiah, to be standing for the truth, proclaiming the truth, and being rejected. And he knew this was a beginning of real rejection, where he would be persecuted even to the point of suffering for death. See, he was a man of compassion. He, he was known for the compassion that he had for people. And some are just saying, well, he's one of the prophets. The man that God sent with a message for our time. We may not like that message. We may not believe it. But that's what characterized a prophet. A man with a message from God for our time. Again. All of these opinions were wrong. You cannot compare the Lord Jesus Christ to another man. He's unique. He's supreme. He's sovereign. 
He is very God incarnate. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And so, when you look through it, and, and if you want to go through other scriptures, you know there are many other answers in the Gospels that tell us what others were thinking about him. In Mark 6, verse 3, people were saying, ah, he's just a carpenter, lowly carpenter. Some were saying, he's a son of Joseph. You know that carpenter down there in Nazareth? Some were saying, he's a sinner. John 9, 24. Others saying he's an illegitimate child. John 8, 41. Some even said he's a devil. Matthew 12, 24. Some said he's a madman, John 10, 20. Some said he's a fool, Matthew 27. There are all kinds of opinions out there. So Jesus said, okay, second question. Who do you say? Whom say ye that I am? This is personal. If I were to go around this morning and I would say, Dave, who's Jesus? So, do you know what answer you'd give? Or Matthew, who's Jesus? Who, who, who do you think I am? Jerry, who do you think Jesus is? You go around. Do you really, are you prepared in your heart to be able to give an answer? This is who Jesus is. Exclamation point. I can tell you who he is. Can we do that? And so we find out. Peter speaks up for the group. And Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. All right. Pretty clear answer. What's he saying in that answer? Well, he's saying, first of all, you are the promised Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the Son of God. Meaning that you are God. Fully equal with God in every way. And so, he gives that answer. And how does Jesus respond? If you know the truth, you know who Jesus is. How will Jesus respond? Well, he answered. Jesus answered and said to him, You're blessed. Wow. Of all the opinions out there about who Jesus is, you're blessed if you know the truth. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? Because you didn't get this from man. Flesh and blood's not revealed it to you. See, an understanding of who Jesus is comes only from God the Father by the Spirit of God as he has revealed it to us in his word. And so we find out that in understanding who the Lord Jesus is, you're blessed to know the truth. But then he goes on. And he says to, to, to Peter after this, I say unto thee, Peter, I'm telling you, your name's Peter. You're just a little stone. But upon what you've just said, upon this confession that you just made, this rock, as it were, I will build my church. The church is built upon the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. You remember in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the key verses to the Gospel of John? It says, uh, Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing that, what do we have? 
life. Life. Real life. The eternal life, the abundant life, the greatest life that there is. In understanding, knowing who Jesus is. And so, if you simply believe, uh, as, as you look at this and consider it all together, if you simply believe he's a good man, you don't. And you'd be surprised at the number of professing Christians that I've said, well, Jesus was a great man. He was a good teacher. They don't have life. That's not what you have to know to have life. You have to know who he is because it's only as who he is that he can do what he came to do to provide our salvation. And so, again, when the Lord Jesus said this, he said to Peter, you're a little stone. But on the reality of your confession, and it makes these five great words, I will build my church. I, if you look at that very quickly, the church is a personal undertaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his project. We have all these people and in the world today and saying, oh, I'm going to build a great church. No, no. It's his undertaking. The Lord Jesus is the only one that can build a church. You may build a, a man's empire. You may build whatever. But you cannot build the church. Okay. We can build up the church. We're to build up one another, edify one another. But it's a personal undertaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, he's still building. He's still adding. I will. What's will telling us? It was yet future. The church was not existent in the Old Testament. The church was not existent even when Jesus was there. He's saying at this point, I will. It's yet future. And it didn't start until 50 days after his Death, burial, and resurrection. Day of Pentecost is when he started building his church. All right? I will build. It's a process. It didn't just happen. It's a process. And that process has been going on for over 2,000 years. These were long-winded preachers, don't they? Okay. I'm sorry. I thought I was doing so well here. All right. So, I will build the process. My, it's a personal possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, it's a unique and completely different program. Entity. It's not Israel revised and revisited. It's totally different. And then he closes that with, and the gates of Hades. Even the most immoral, unrighteous, godless systems in the world will never defeat the church. You know, we can look at the news today and we can say, wow, how terrible things are. But I want to tell you, God's still growing the church. He's still building it. People are being saved. And we should take courage in that. But one of these days, that last stone's going to be in place. Or that last shingle's going to be in the, on the building, as it were. And Jesus is going to come. Because the church is complete. And those of us who are alive and remain are going to be taken home to glory to be with him. And I can tell you, I'm excited. I believe it's close. And I'm saying, even so, come on Jesus. We need to be looking for that. So closing with just a couple of three statements. The most important question that you can ever know the answer to. Jake, it's not on that French test coming up yet this week. Those are important questions. Study hard for them. Study harder for them than you did for the quiz your grandfather gave you this morning. <laughs> okay. But I can tell you the most important question you can ever answer correctly. Who do you say that I am? 
if you know who Jesus Christ is, if you really believe who he is, trust in what he's done, I tell you, you have the best life that you could live on planet Earth, and you've got a future that's out of this world. That's beyond imagination. Just look at it. So, can you answer that question? What you believe about the personal work of Jesus Christ is essential to your eternal destiny. But listen to three quick lessons that we need to understand from this. The first is you can be close, but wrong about Jesus. There are a lot of people who are close, but they're wrong. Second truth, there is a right and wrong answer. And so you need to make sure that you can be have the right that you have the right answer, not just a close answer. Because when you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ or at the great white throne judgment, he doesn't grade on the curve. Okay. And the third quick lesson. We discover this passage. Once you know the answer and you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he's done, you have power. You have strength. You can live in a way that's going to bring glory to him throughout eternity and all, every day of our Who do you say I am? Was Jesus' question. Do you really believe the true answer? Or do you continue to believe the lie? It's up to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for the privilege that we have to look into your word. Father, it's a straightforward question that Jesus asked his disciples. And when the answer was correct, it really, in many respects, was a turning point. Though there were failures, it was still a turning point in the lives of those men. It's a turning point in every one of our lives when we understand who he is because, Father, he can only do what he's done because of who he is. So we thank you in that precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks for putting up with me. So good to be with you again.